Thanks for joining the Sunrise Message of the Week podcast. We are part of the Sunrise Podcast Network. For more information on Sunrise Christian Center and our sponsors, the Sun Network and Seattle Bible College, check out our website at isunrise.org. That's isunrise, sunrise with an O, dot org. Please help spread the word by subscribing, downloading, rating, and commenting on our podcast. The more you interact with our content, the more people will hear it. Now let's listen as Pastor John begins our new series, Revival Prayer, with a message entitled, 10 Myths About Prayer. This is a very interesting time. I was planning on doing this series, Revival Prayer, for uh, some time now, for at least a few months. And it was before we were going to be on lockdown, before... Uh, we knew what was going to be happening in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in. And it's amazing to me to hear how all these pastors and peers and other leaders that I look up to around the nation are talking to them about how God is really calling them personally into a heightened place of prayer. And he's calling their churches into an increased measure of prayer. And I want to talk to you today as we launch this series about confronting 10 myths about prayer. Uh, we are in a very interesting situation uh, during this lockdown. We are in a season where our ministry and our time is very limited in how we are able to spend it as a people. And I was on a national conference call with the U.S. Coalition of Apostolic Leaders and one of the pastors and leaders, James Garlow, was on the call with Bishop Joseph Matera and there was maybe at least 80 or 90 uh, national leaders that were a part of this call. And James Garlow, who does a lot of ministry in Washington, D.C., uh, he, he said, uh, he talked about how f- freedom in a nation is really upheld through, through freedom of religion, through freedom of speech, and through freedom, uh, economic freedom, and the ability for people to have business. And when you, when you mess with any of those three legs of the stool of freedom, you really uh, destroy the ability for freedom to be in that land. And he said one of the concerns that he has in our nation right now is that he, he felt in his heart that he was concerned that the church wasn't engaging in prayer to the measure that we needed to. And he said if millions of people are filing for unemployment, people are scared of this disease, uh, the government, and, and he wasn't saying that we shouldn't, have t- we shouldn't take health measures, but he said if we've learned that a government system can come in and shut things down that quickly, right? And, and, and in a lot of ways, we should be shutting things down when there's this kind of health crisis and we wanna be loving our neighbors and you know, honoring government as, they're honor, as, as long as we're able to still exercise the, the honor for our Lord and for his word, right? But he said, I was just thinking that if the church was watching all these things happen in the nation, that we would increase in prayer even more. He said, what is it going to take if these kind of things are happening and we don't engage in prayer? What kind of devastation would have to come to kind of wake people up? And he wasn't saying that God's going to send doom or anything like that, but it was just something that he was pondering as a leader. And I I was just feeling in my spirit, uh, well, our church is increasing in prayer. I believe that by the grace of God. I believe that by the grace, my life is increasing. And I know a lot of believers who are. And so I took it as a, as a warning, but I also took it as an encouragement to say, this is a message that we need in this hour, not just to preach about, but this is a message that we need to live as a church. And there was a, an article called the coronavirus experiment. And it was written by a pastor and he takes us into church history. He said, the challenges that the church leaders are facing for the next few weeks may be unprecedented for the Western church, but it is not unprecedented in church history. The great missionary James Frazier found himself in a very similar position when he began to preach the gospel to the pagan Chinese villagers of Lissalan in the first half of the 20th century. Lissalan lies several hundred miles west of Wuhan in the foothills of the Himalayas. So James Frazier very often found himself unable to reach his converts in the most mountainous areas. Winter snowfalls made it too dangerous for him to gather them together in church services. At first he was frustrated and even angry with God who could easily have held back the snowfall to enable his church services to go ahead. But as he prayed, James Frazier became convicted that God was in the problem. It was a challenge of the Lord's own making. The Lord wanted him to conduct an experiment on behalf of the body of Christ. And I believe that God wants us to turn back to James Frazier's experiment right now. 
James Frazier worked out that it would take him three to five days to conduct church services in the highland villages of Lisselin, one or two days of travel up into the mountains, a day of gathering, and then one or two days of travel back down again. He therefore decided to find out what would happen if I decided to spend the time that I would have spent gathering with these Lisu people, praying for them instead. For James Frazier, this was more than just a throwaway tweet on social media. It was an oh-so-radical piece of church. It wasn't an oh-so-radical piece of church leader virtue signaling. No, no one knew or even cared how much a missionary chose to spend his time in the foothills of the Himalayas. It was between James Frazier and God alone, but he gave himself to his, this experiment completely. He prayed for three to five days for each of the highland villages instead of visiting them. Then once the spring sun melted the snow, he climbed the mountains to discover what had happened. No scientist can ever have been so eager to examine the Petri dishes in his laboratory. James Frazier discovered that his converts in the Highland villages had prospered during the winter months in which he had found himself unable to gather them together. In fact, as he met with them to hear about their winter Bible reading and their isolated prayer times, he came to the remarkable conclusion that his converts in the highlands of Lisselin had grown far more during the winter than his converts in the lowlands. The converts that he had been busy visiting and gathering all winter long. He recorded his conclusion. If two things stand out clearly in my mind, they are firstly how foolish and weak our new converts are, and secondly, that God has really chosen them. Therefore, he has determined never to fret when he could not gather people, but always to seize it as a God-given invitation to pray for people instead. If I were to think after the manner of men, I should be anxious about my Lisu converts, afraid of their falling back into demon worship. But God is enabling me to cast all my care upon him. I am not anxious, not nervous. If I hugged my, my care to myself instead of casting it upon him, I should have never persevered in the work so long, perhaps never even started it. But if it has been begun in him, it must be continued in him. James Frazier never knew the full results of his prayer experiment. Many missiologists trace back the enormous revival that has swept through China in the past 50 years to the revival that began among the Highlanders of Lisselin during the winters when he stayed home and prayed. It's incredible. Does it sound familiar? A bunch of believers that are stuck in their homes. They can't visit one another. Their pastors can't be with them. They can't check on them personally. And he spends his time in prayer instead of spending his time in travel to see him face to face and finds out that the results of praying daily, three to five days a week for new converts were more powerful and dynamic than the people that he was even able to care for and teach himself in person. There is a power in prayer. When we're stuck at home, our prayers know no boundaries. Our prayers shake heaven and earth. So what is prayer? As we go into this series, I want to confront 10 myths about prayer. But what is prayer? Prayer is talking with God. Prayer is communication. Prayer is the vehicle. It's, the, it's a gift that God has given us to connect directly with Him, to commune with Him, to have conversation with Him, to speak to Him, to hear from Him, to have, to have relationship, to have influence with God for the sake of man. And we're calling this series Revival Prayer. So what is revival? Well, revival is dead things coming back to life. And it's true that you do not see the word revival in the Bible. So some people don't like to use the word revival. But what you do see, you see the word revive. You see the word awaken. You see the word outpouring. And these things are slightly different in their terminology, but they convey the same heart. So what are we talking about when we talk about revival prayer? We're talking about prayers that get answered. We're talking about talking with God, communicating with God from a place of a burning heart to bring dead things to life in our lives, our families, our church, our city, and our nation, and the ends of the earth, wherever God calls us to pray. Revival prayer, it is desperation. It's a passionate longing, a cry, a fire, a voice, a breath, a death, a resurrection. It's rebirth, a renewal, a reformation, a great awakening. It's a reset. It's not just a moment. It's a movement. It's broken vessels of oil. It's tears. It's laughter. It's declaring. It's shouting. It's silence. It's dancing. It's listening. It's deconstructing, reconstructing. It's devastation to darkness. 
It's the resuscitation of hope. It unlocks inheritance. It finds refuge in God. It unleashes holy fear, a fiery heart, a steadfast spirit, hunger like the starving, desperate as the poor, finding true wealth, intimacy that is unrivaled, the presence of the king, an audience of one, his kingdom breaking in, our darkest days to our brightest night, the fight you get to win, the glory of the intercessor, history is waiting, never has so much been done by so small a step, welcome to the party, revival prayer, repent, abide, remain, will you tarry? Revival prayer. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for prayer. I want to thank you for revival prayer. I want to thank you for prayers that aren't filled with niceties or religiosity or little cliches, but prayers that bring the dead to life, that bring dead souls to life, dead bodies to life, dead limbs to life, dead families to life, dead nations to life, dead promises to life. Prayer that has resurrection power. Prayer that the way that Jesus prayed, that if we abide in you, Lord, Lord Jesus, we would have what we ask in prayer. And so, Lord, I want to thank you, God, for the power of prayer and how you're going to break myths and wrong beliefs that we've had about prayer today as we confront 10 myths about prayer, Lord God, that you would break the shackles and the fetters off of our mind that have limited us in our ability to believe and participate in the greatest invitation that we have as a believer, the greatest invitation that we have as the church. Our greatest resource is you, Lord, our, our relationship with you hearing your voice, and knowing how to commune with you. And so I thank you, God, for the start of a series, that this is a, this is a time for us to engage in prayer as a people. And I pray that you would fill our virtual house of prayer, and that very soon you would fill our prayer room, Lord God, with 24-7 prayer and worship before your throne, where we would minister to the heart of Jesus and host your presence, Lord Jesus, over our lives, city, and nation. And we would see, Lord God, out of that ministering to your heart, we would see a release of the kingdom of God breaking into the earth and having your will be done, Lord God, as your kingdom comes in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm a little fired up today. So 10 myths. Let's see if we can get through these 10 things in a timely manner. Somebody pray for the boy. All right. So number one, our confronting 10 myths about prayer. Number one, prayer is not doing something. That's the first myth. Prayer is not doing something. We live in the middle of a culture that despises prayer. And if we are not careful, we, we can let the world shame us about our prayerfulness. What do I mean by this? We have a myth that it's like, oh, you're sending your thoughts and prayers. Oh man, well, it's all gonna get screwed up now. They're gonna send their thoughts and prayers, which means they're not gonna do anything. We reject this. This is a myth. This is a lie. Prayer is the highest activity that mankind can participate in. Prayer connects us to our greatest resource, God. I call it the God factor. There is a place in human history and in crisis and in your own personal needs that nothing else can remedy certain situations but God. And so do not let people shame you for praying. I don't know so much about sending thoughts. Yeah, maybe that's worthless. I don't know. Maybe it helps a little bit. I don't really, the Bible doesn't tell us about sending our thoughts, but our prayers, our prayers shake, he shake heaven and earth. Our prayers shape the earth. Our prayers bring dead things to life. The Bible says in James 5, 16, that the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That means prayer is doing much. So people say prayer doesn't do anything. A lot of Christians thinks prayer does a little. The Bible says prayer does much. It does a lot. Reject this. Reject this lie. And on top of prayer being so powerful, I love what Mike Bickle says, founder of the International House of Prayer. He says, lovers get more work done than workers do. Very often when you give yourself to prayer, it's amazing how God starts to orchestrate even your work ethic. And people that are prayer warriors tend to not be lazy bums that just sit around and do nothing. Now, and now, if you have ever tried to give yourself to extended times of prayer, even if you were an intercessor that prayed 40 hours a week, you wouldn't be a lazy bum because you're, you're, you're doing something for 40 hours a week just praying. 
And I, I thank God. I believe God's going to raise up prayer missionaries. God's going to raise up people. Maybe, maybe they'll be retirees. Maybe they'll be young people. Maybe they'll be people that in a season of their life, they just come to participate in our house of prayer and give themselves to extended prayer for hours and hours. And thank God for that. But then also out of that place of love and intimacy, it's amazing how creativity is released. Time management increases. King David was a radical prayer warrior. He gave us the, most of the Psalms. He's an amazing lover of God. But yet he accomplished a ton of work as a king. So just because you spend a lot of time in prayer in the presence of God doesn't mean you don't do anything else. And John Wesley said, I have so much to do, the great revivalist, John Wesley, I have so much to do that I spend several hours in prayer before I am able to do it. Did you catch that? I've got so much to do, I've got to spend several hours in prayer first so I can get it all done. Because when you give yourself to prayer, it's amazing how God orchestrates and rearranges and he removes distractions and he, he gives you focus. Reject the myth, baby. Reject the lie that prayer is not doing something. Prayer is doing the highest activity that a human heart can participate in. Number two, next myth. Now these 10 myths, maybe there's other myths too. I don't know if I'm comprehensive, but these are the 10 that I see uh, as a pastor, as a student of prayer, I used to preach on one topic as a youth pastor, and that was prayer. Pretty much like, like, every, like they were like, oh, John's preaching. It's going to be on prayer. So I'm kind of going back to my roots with this series. That's why I'm so excited. But here we go. Number two, 10 myths. Prayer doesn't change things other than my attitude. There's a whole bunch of books, great Christian authors, Prayer is about forming your heart. Prayer is about forming your attitude. Prayer doesn't change God. It changes you. It shapes your affections. It shapes uh, who you are, but it doesn't change anything else but kind of who you are. So it teaches you to accept how things are in the world. It teaches you, prayer teaches you to accept hardship and be thankful in suffering. And I would say that partially this myth is true. Yes, prayer does shape our attitude. It shapes the affections of our heart. We do learn how to rejoice in trials through prayer, but we must understand that the Bible does not teach us that prayer only changes our attitude. The Bible teaches that prayer changes things. Jesus said this in John 15, seven, if you abide in me and my words in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Andrew Murray with his excellent book, I can't recommend it enough, With Christ in the School of Prayer. In chapter 21 of that book, he has this excerpt and I'd like you to bear with me as I read a little bit of this because this is probably outside of the scriptures and the teachings on Jesus uh, himself. This is probably the most powerful couple paragraphs I have ever read in my life on the topic of prayer. And I've read a lot of books on prayer. I've heard a lot of sermons on prayer and this has got to take the cake, all right? So Andrew Murray, what did he have to say about does prayer just change my attitude according to what Jesus teaches in John 15? On a thoughtful comparison of what we mostly find in books or sermons on prayer and the teaching of the master, we shall find one great difference. The importance assigned to the answer to prayer is by no means the same. In the former, we find a great deal on the blessing of prayer as a spiritual exercise, even if there be no answer, and on the reasons why we should be content without it. God's fellowship ought to be of more to us than the gift we ask. God's wisdom only knows what is best. God may bestow something better than what he withholds. Though this teaching looks very high and spiritual, it is remarkable that we find nothing of it with our Lord. The more carefully we gather together all he spoke on prayer, the clearer it becomes that he wished us to think of prayer simply as he wished us to think of prayer simply as the means to an end and the answer was to be the proof that we and our prayer are acceptable to the Father in heaven. It is not that Christ would have us count the gifts of higher value than the fellowship and favor of the Father by no means. But the Father means the answer to be the token of his favor and the reality of our fellowship with him. A life marked by daily answer to prayer is the proof of our spiritual maturity, that we have indeed attained to the true abiding in Christ, that our will is truly at one with God's will, that our faith was, has grown strong to see and take what God has prepared for us, that the name of Christ and his nature have taken full possession of us, and that we have been found fit to take a place among those whom God omits to his counsels and according to whose prayer he rules the world. 
These are they in whom something of man's original dignity hath been restored, in whom as they abide in Christ, his power as the all-prevailing intercessor can manifest itself, in whom the glory of his name is shown forth. Prayer is very blessed. The answer is more blessed still. As the response from the Father that our prayer, our faith, our will are indeed as he wished them to be. I make these remarks with the one desire of leading my readers themselves to put together all that Christ has said on prayer and to yield themselves to the full impression of the truth that when prayer is what it should be, or rather when we are what we should be, abiding in Christ, the answer must be expected. It will bring us out from those refuges where we have comforted ourselves with unanswered prayer. It will discover to us the place of power to which Christ has appointed his church in which it so little occupies. It will reveal the terrible feebleness of our spiritual life as the cause of our not knowing to pray boldly in Christ's name. It will urge us mightily to rise to a life in full union with Christ and in the fullness of the spirit as the secret of effectual prayer. And it will lead us so to realize our destiny destiny at that day verily verily I say to you if you ask anything of the father he will give it to you in my name ask and you shall receive and your joy may be fulfilled prayer that is really spiritually in union with Jesus is always answered I can't add anything of value to that statement but and time would fail me because I could do a whole series on this one topic of prayer. We could just go through the whole Bible and look at prayers that were answered. When Elijah was surrounded by, come on, all these other uh, the prophets of Baal, wailing and weeping and cutting themselves and doing this great demonstration, God didn't come to that prayer and Elijah and say, well, you know what? You're just gonna have to suffer as a persecuted believer in the corner. No, prayer changed things. Ask Daniel if prayer just changed his attitude. No, Daniel's prayers move angels and demons. Daniel's prayers shut the mouth of lions. Come on, if we, looked, if we were to take time to look through the scripture, we would see that, yes, the greatest privilege of prayer is ministering to the heart of Jesus and having fellowship with him. But out of that abiding with him then is to be the fruit of answered prayer. And so if we live with unanswered prayer where only our attitude has changed or we just learn to accept things the way that they are, then we're not actually praying the way Jesus or the great heroes of the faith prayed. In, in our abiding in him, changing our attitude, the fruit should be then we are a conduit. We are a vessel for Christ, the intercessor himself to manifest his well, will in the earth through the prayers of his people. Prayers change way more than our attitude. They change situations. They change what happens in the world. And God is looking for a people to engage in prayer. Number three of the 10 myths that we must confront about prayer, these 10 falsehoods. Number three, prayer should only be when I feel like it. I've had many believers talk about how, well, you talk about prayer, but I just don't feel into it, or worship, and I don't want to worship or pray right now, and I don't want to be inauthentic, and I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Prayer is not a place for the spiritually mature only. It's a place where we become mature. I don't pray when I feel like it, or I wouldn't pray that often. I pray until I feel like it. Hello? Does that make sense? I don't pray when I feel, I pray until I feel like it. I come to prayer with wrong motives all the time. How do I get my motives straightened out? It's in prayer. If I leave with the wrong motives, then we can question whether I really even prayed or not. Right? Did I really meet with God or did I just have a complaint session? If you, if you leave prayer worse than you came, you probably didn't really pray or you're not praying to Jesus. I don't know what's going on, but, but you can come however you are. He's the one that cleans you up, heals you up. Uh, he'll mess you up sometimes, but he, he'll be, he's the one that puts you back together. He's the one that gives you the right motives. And so we shouldn't pray based on our feelings. We needed to cultivate a habit. Well, I'm only going to do nice things for my wife when I really feel like doing nice things. I'm only going to do nice things for my husband when I feel. How many of your relationships would go well when you treated them a good, in a good way only when you felt like doing it? They wouldn't last that long. Psalms 34, 4, the psalmist said, I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. You pray when you need it. You pray when you don't feel like you need it. You just pray. We just learn to cultivate relationship with God in prayer. Don't wait for your feelings. They will deceive you and they will leave you high and dry in a life of prayer. Number four, I hear this one a lot. Prayer just isn't for me. 
I'm just not really one of those praying people types. My husband, he, he's a real prayer. My wife, oh, she's, she's really dynamic in prayer. But, but me, I, just, I don't really have a gift to pray. I'm not, one of, I'm not one of those words people. I'm a more quiet person. Well, then you pray quietly. This is not true. There is no spiritual gift in the Bible of prayer or intercession. I mean, prayer is a gift in the sense that God gave us the ability to communicate with him, but there is no spiritual endowment for prayer that says you are a prayer person and you're not a prayer person. Uh, it's, it's just not in the Bible. Every believer is called to pray. In Matthew 6, 6, Jesus taught this, when you pray, <laughs> when you pray. He was assuming that everybody that followed him, this is like, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. This is like the hallmark teaching. Even people from other faiths, religions, and governments that don't even acknowledge Jesus as Lord, they will say that this is probably the pinnacle of all moral teaching uh, of all world literature is the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus Christ. And Jesus is teaching his followers how to live and participate in his kingdom reign breaking into the earth. And he says, when you pray. When you pray, he's expecting that if you're a follower of his, that one of the practices that you're going to give yourself to is prayer. And so maybe some believers like to pray more than others. I don't know. Yes, that could be true. Some people, God does call them to give themselves to extended times of prayer that he does not call every believer to, to pray for the same amount of time or to give their, their, their lives or, you know, to to eight or 10 or 12 hours a day of prayer. I'm not saying you've got to quit your job to pray all day, but what I am trying to say is prayer is a discipline and you need to learn how to cultivate that discipline. And uh, men of God, women of God, you've been trained to do all sorts of things that you aren't very good at in one part of your life so that you can make a living so that you can, uh, you went to school, most of you, if not all of you, for some portion of your life, and you learn things. The wonderful thing about prayer is it's just like anything else, you can learn it. You, if you're not good at it, you can learn it. Don't let this myth rob you from the gift that prayer is. Prayer is the highest activity of every believer. And all spiritual growth starts, continues, and ends in and through prayer. I mean, if we didn't spend time cultivating a prayer life, there would literally be no way to grow spiritually. In fact, I think the most effective way to disciple people is to teach them how to pray. This is the one thing that Jesus' disciples longed to hear from their master. They, they, they asked him, teach us to pray. That's the only thing we see in the whole Bible. They didn't say, Jesus, uh, show us how to cast out demons. Jesus, show us how to do more miracles. Jesus, they knew that there was something about the prayer life of Jesus that they were lacking. And they said, would you please teach us how to pray? Master, if there's one thing we've seen in you, because they knew it was the key to all of Jesus's success, all of your spiritual growth. If you don't feel like praying, if you don't feel like growing, then I would start my prayer life like this. God, I'm praying because apparently I'm supposed to, and I don't want to do this. And I don't even know, would you help me want to pray? That's what I would do because I can't do anything without him. I can't do anything without him. His grace is always working in my life before I'm able to even achieve the things that I want in God. So if I wait till I feel like it, or if I have this lie that it's not for me, you need to start cultivating that discipline. It's amazing. Like young, you young men, you meet some woman and all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, I love country music like that. Yeah, oh, that one. Oh, and then you're like, you go home and you're like, oh man, you're scrolling through. You're like, I better find out some country music. Or like, you're like, that girl likes this. Or she, you're all of a sudden you're interested and you start learning about something. You start growing, right? And you do all sorts of things for something. Now, cultivate, you can do this. Cultivate a ability to pray if you wanna grow in your love for God. Don't use the excuse. Don't buy into the myth that prayer isn't for you. It's for all of us. Number five, prayer is for private. Some people are like these excited people that get so exuberant. Prayer is just should be quiet, mellow. It's reflective. It kind of ties into that myth of uh, prayer, just changing our attitude, uh, that, that prayer should be quiet. And Jesus did warn us about praying in a public place. He warned that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, that they prayed in such a way that um, they were drawing attention to themselves. And, and Jesus does condemn public prayer for the sake of appearing spiritual. But prayer should be corporate or a public event as well, uh, as long as it's not a prideful show of one's spiritual superiority. Revival is often birthed out of united, fervent 
prayer and when the church comes together to pray. In Acts 4, a great revival was released. They, the, the early church had been persecuted. They'd been thrown in prison by the religious authorities of the day. And when they're released, uh, when, when Peter and John are released back to the disciples, they come and they tell them how they've been persecuted and they start to pray in one heart. They start to pray in a spirit of unity and they call on heaven and it says in Acts 4.31, when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Come on. And the gospel in the middle of persecution, because they prayed fervently together, they have a literal earth shaking. They have an earthquake that's released. They're filled with the Holy Spirit again. These were the many, if not all of the same people that are and more that were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. They're filled with the Holy Spirit again and then they go speak the word of God with boldness. And so public prayer is powerful. If prayer is the highest activity of the believer, then united prayer is the greatest activity of the church. Jonathan Edwards said for revival, there are three necessities. Visible union, explicit agreement, and fervent prayer. What's he saying? There must be visible signs of unity in a church, in a region. Not just one church one denomination or one church, but all the denominations, all the churches that love Jesus and his word, uniting and saying, we are all one church. Explicit agreement. We agree that Jesus is Lord. We agree on the essentials of our faith and what God wants to do in this hour. And then we give ourselves to fervent prayer. And I believe that's what God is doing, even through our souls and cities offering, being able to bless another church in our city. And so we want to have visible signs of unity. We want to support other church. I'm leading pastor's prayer. And we, got, we did a Zoom call this week. And there was, uh, I think, nine of us that were on the Zoom call this week. And we, were, and we were praying for each other's churches. And we want it to be visibly known that we are praying together, that we support one another that, uh, that uh, South Everett Foursquare's win is our win, that Reach Everett's win is our win, that Venture Church Everett, that their win is our win, that their sorrows are our sorrows, their loss is our loss, and that we are in it for the city, and that we are, then we are in agreement that God wants to bring revival and awakening, that the name of Jesus would be made great over our city, and then we give ourselves to fervent prayer for those things. But prayer is not just for private. That's a myth, that it's only private. Number six. I'm not trying to talk out of both sides of my mouth here, but number six is that prayer that brings revival comes from large prayer meetings. <laughs> Other people believe that unless you can get all the Christians in one room at one time, now, trust me, I've got dreams of filling an arena with all the people from our city and region, all getting on their knees before Jesus and declaring him as king and praying in unity because corporate prayer, large prayer gatherings change the atmosphere of cities. But if we think that revival only comes when we can get all the Christians to pray together or all the church prays together or it can only come on a Sunday morning or if the whole church does this, if I can only pray this prayer from the platform. I mean, there's some people that are convinced that unless they can play their shofar with John 3.16 written across their chest, you know, during a Super Bowl end zone that like revival's not gonna break out in America, you know? And like, now, and now I love uh, people that are out on their little crazy God assignments just giving it all for Jesus, but sometimes we allow in the middle of a prophetic culture or in the middle of, of longing for these great things to happen, sometimes we start putting extra stipulations on how they have to happen. Like unless I'm in the room, unless it works like this, unless we get these key leaders to do this. Now we always want to be obedient to the Holy Spirit and he will lead us in how to gather people and pray at different times. But we have to also be careful that we don't uh, become a hostage of a, of, a, of a weakened or a partial theology, right? So in Mark 14, we learn about Mary of Bethany. And it says in Mark 14, 3, that in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, as Jesus sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard. And then she broke the flask and she poured it on his head. And then at the end of that passage, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. One of the greatest acts of prayer and devotion to Jesus was not on a stage, was not in a crowd, not when Jesus was with the multitude. Wasn't when it, Jesus said this thing would be declared wherever the gospel is preached in all the world. This story has changed more people's lives for something that happened as a private act of love for Jesus. The great revival that broke out in the Hebrides. Some people were sending a video this week. And it's powerful. But the great revival that broke out in the Hebrides started with two elderly women. 
that had a hunger and they went to their pastor and they're like, are you right with God? Because <laughs> we're praying for a revival. We want to make sure you get fully right with God. I was listening and I'm like, he's going to come ask me. I better, be, get, I better get on my game. Right? But this was a private act of love for Jesus that has transformed the world. And you praying in your home, in virtual house of prayer, on a lockdown, you coming to a little prayer room at Sunrise Christian Center when we get to open it back up and you pouring your love on Jesus. And my dream is that worship leaders and prayer warriors and preachers would rather be in the little prayer room all by themselves, with their family, with a couple of friends. My desire is that our little prayer room, that you can maybe pack 20 people around the room, that it would have 30, 40, and 50 people in it in the middle of the week on their faces. And they'd be crying out to God. And I believe that it's important what happens in a Sunday morning, but I don't believe that it, we, if this is teaching us anything, church, uh, this, this lockdown, is that we cannot put all our eggs in the Sunday morning basket. We, we can't expect that revival comes when we just have church services seven nights a week. We've got we've to realize that private acts of devotion, that we've got to spend our greatest anointing on Jesus. Mary of Bethany was willing to take her greatest anointing, her greater cost, and an act of private devotion to break that on the feet of our Lord, to anoint his head, to anoint his feet, to wipe the other, the other times it's recorded in the Gospel of John. We see that she wipes his head. She wipes his feet. She's weeping over Jesus. She's, she's dedicated to Jesus. And the greatest invitation of prayer is ministering to the heart of Jesus. And I've been praying this week, God, I want my greatest poetry to never Never be shared from the pulpit. I want it just to be written to you. I just want, I just want to, I want to share it to your heart. I want my greatest prayers not to be prayed from the stage. I want them to be prayed in the secret place. I want to just be fully alive, pouring my heart out on Jesus. I want my most valuable anointing not to be spent on ministering to others, but ministering to Jesus. And I have a dream that songwriters and worship leaders, that they, would, that they would line up to just come in with a guitar or a keyboard in our little house of prayer. And maybe we'll put some of them online sometimes. We might even have some worship coming from some homes this week. We're trying to figure that out on the rest of lockdown. Just to bring, that, that just in the little moments, in the private sessions, in, in the small gatherings that God shapes the world through just one or two, just through, just through those private times. We don't need a large meeting to have revival. We, we, we will see revival through large meetings of prayer, but we will also see revival, birth and sustain through private prayer, through people pouring their oil, their most costly things of their heart on the feet of Jesus. And Jesus is worthy. He's worthy. Whether we can get on the stage or we can get in the stadium or whether we're all alone at home and we're locked in somewhere in a nursing home, we're locked in with our family, See, one of the most powerful times of prayer I've had in a long time was yesterday with my family, and we put on that new rattle song by um, Elevation Worship that just came out this week, and we we and we and we did a couple others as well, and we just we worshipped, and we said, let's not sit and read the Bible and just kind of talk right now. Let's stand up and let's worship, and we danced. Well, some of us danced, and uh, and uh, and I danced, and and we just loved Jesus together, and His presence just invaded our home. And it was just such a powerful time uh, in prayer. And we prayed for each other. And Grace had this idea to just have the kids speak words of life over each other. And all, we all took turns speaking a life over each other. And it was just so encouraging. And then uh, my son, who doesn't usually do this, you know, he didn't even know what was happening. But he, he, uh, he spoke a word of life over me. And he just encouraged me as a dad. And it, and it, was, it was touching and encouraging. And, and then he's like, he's like, so I just want to thank... God for that, dad, about you. And then he gets this kind of like, look like his eyes got really big and like a tear was welling up. And I go, thanks, bud. That was really powerful. Are you going to cry? And then he goes, yes. And he just like pours his head onto his mom's shoulder. And he's like, just I don't even know why I'm crying. I don't know why this is happening right now. I'm not sad. You know, he's like, but the presence of God had invaded our home. That's what we need. It's not just these big times of prayer. It's like a big time of prayer is our family. Praying is a family. Is praying when we're locked down and when things are closed. Like, is that we're not limited anywhere when we pray and we pour our devotion and our love on Jesus. Number seven, prayer is only effective when enough people pray for the same thing. Uh, Grace and I were out on a walk about two weeks ago 
and we came across a very colorful minivan decorated in all these bright flowers. And there was a lady there and we stopped and we shared uh, the gospel with her. We used Jesus at the door to share Jesus with her. And uh, we kept our social distance. We had our good six plus feet away, and, but we were engaging with her. And she said, I don't believe in God. I don't pray. But she said, I do think if enough people like are maybe praying for the same thing, like maybe somehow there's like this positive energy that does something good. And we got to be careful because uh, even as Christians that maybe do believe in God, and if you're not a Christian and you're watching this, I'm glad that you are. I'm not expecting that everybody is, but I'm just saying Christians believe in God, uh, hopefully, <laughs> and uh, or they wouldn't really be a Christian. But uh, we sometimes get into that same thing that kind of the new age movement or the new thought movement gets into of like positive energy. And if we just get enough Christians all saying the same magic words. Now, again, there's power in agreement. There's power in that corporate united prayer. But sometimes we actually get into a place where we get into like mass hysteria. And there was a study that was done recently about the effects of uh, people coming together in in worship. And they were saying that uh, uh, there's a, There's an adrenaline rush that you get from being in a room full of people all singing and shouting the same things together. And one of my pastors in New York that I read from sometimes, he was talking about how it could be that a lot of times what people have thought was the presence of God was just the phenomenon of being in a large gathering all singing and shouting the same thing. And what we're learning right now, what, what one of the gifts of this lockdown is maybe, maybe sometimes we've relied on the shouting and singing of everybody else to give us a feeling of euphoria or a feeling of excitement. And we haven't learned to cultivate a true experience with the presence of God ourselves. And it's not to say that we don't experience God's presence in large gatherings, that it's all hysteria. No, 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 no. God's presence does manifest in large gatherings where we all sing and shout the same thing. But sometimes we could mistake at times or be immature and, real, and we have to realize how do we cultivate presence presence when there's no band, when there's not a bunch of people jumping up and down next to me, shouting and singing. How do I learn to do this? And so uh, it was in Elijah's day when he's confronting the prophets of Baal. And we'll actually look at Elijah's prayer uh, later on in this series more specifically, but they're all, they're all chanting. And sometimes Christians get in this thing where we're all going to start chanting. We're all going to start shouting this. We're all going to, and, and you have to, after all, sometimes we got to step back and go, wait a second. Are we just getting into hype? Are we just getting into like the power of mantra or the power of us just all saying the same thing? Now there is power in our declaration. Life and death is in the power of our tongue. But prayer is is not only effective when people are praying the same thing or when we're going, we don't have to try to, to drum it up and get God, to, we don't have to convince God to do stuff that he doesn't want to do. That's not what prayer is, right? Prayer is powerful when we pray even all by ourselves. The prayer of one man or woman makes a difference. One man or woman of God, one man or woman with God is the majority. James 5, 17 to 18 says this about Elijah, that he was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. Did you hear that? Elijah is a man with a nature just like you and me. We have the same nature as Elijah. The prayers of one man or woman of God can make a difference. Myth number eight, prayer in faith always gets results. Some of you aren't gonna like that myth very much. <laughs> what do you mean? I, can have, I got faith for anything. I, I believe God for anything. The Bible doesn't teach us that faith is the only condition. Faith is probably the most well-known condition of answered prayer. But there are other Conditions that the Bible gives us about having answered prayer. Psalm 66, 18 says, we got to repent of sin. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Oh, it's quiet on that one. Well, it's quiet on every point because the room's kind of empty. But I'm just trying to pretend like you're all here. I'm preaching to the masses. I'm preaching to our enlarged sanctuary right now, right? To our... Number two, Humility. 2 Chronicles 7, 14 said, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray. And we're going to get into that scripture more in this series later on. But humility is a requirement for your prayers to be answered, not just faith. You got to repent of sin. You got to be humble. Number three, this one could sting. I'm just saying, I say it in the nicest possible way, but it's just scripture, okay? So take it up with the author. How you treat your spouse. What? 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands likewise dwell with them, dwell with your wives, 
with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Whoa. One one thing from my dad, when people are going on these prayer kind of assignments and these prophetic journeys in their life, and they're like, my spouse just doesn't get it. They don't get what God's showing me and I'm doing, you know, they got to be more mature and they got to pray more and they got to dial in and I've really, God's really called me uh, to do this and that. My dad always say, well, what, is, what did your wife say about that? What did your husband say about that? Oh, well, they, they don't know. They're not seeking God like, I, I spend a lot more time in prayer than they do and they haven't really come on board. And, and what you'll find very often is that those plans and purposes don't usually move forward very well in your life when you're not learning to honor your spouse. So you could have faith, humility, you could be, but you don't have a good relationship with your spouse. Peter says your prayers get hindered. So you could be going to church, you could be paying your tithes, you could be doing all the right things, praying all that, you buy all the prayer books, you got the declaration cards, you declare all the scriptures every day and you're not honoring your spouse as a heir together of the grace of life, as Peter puts it then God's not answering your prayer. Number four, having the right motives. James 4, 3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Sometimes we're just like, God, you know, like, it's like the old Seinfeld, serenity now. It's like, God, wealth now. God, you know, car now, this now. And, and God's like, I don't, you don't need that right now. Now, God blesses us with material things. It, uh, the Bible says God's the one who gives us power to get wealth. And I, I don't believe in a dualistic thing where all matter on the earth is evil and only spiritual things are good. That's a very Gnostic belief. God takes care of our physical needs and he loves to do that even in answer to prayer. But when we're asking in a selfish way or something that's about spending it on our pleasures, we will not receive. And number five, fasting. Jesus taught us that there was some types of faith that we couldn't enter into apart from fasting. Fasting does not change God. Fasting changes us, but fasting does position us to drive out unbelief so that we can believe what God wanted to do all along. And then he releases the answer. Jesus said in Matthew 17, one in context of the disciples not being able to cast out a demon. And they said, why couldn't we cast it out? And he says, because of your unbelief. And he said, but this kind comes out except by prayer and fasting. So there's a time where you've got to add fasting to your prayer to deal with unbelief, to really step in to true faith for the power to pray. Fasting doesn't give us the faith necessarily, but it removes roadblocks within us to faith and allows us to come into alignment and agreement with what God wants to birth in a situation. Number nine, myth number nine. We're getting close to the end, aren't we now? I got a countdown for you built in, 10 points. Number nine, prayer should be quiet to outwit the devil. A lot of people believe this myth. Don't pray that out loud. The devil just heard you. I hope the devil hears me. How about the demons in hell hear me? Pastor Bill Johnson says, there's only, I don't care if man know my name, but there's two places I want my name known. I want my name known in heaven and I want my name known in hell. Remember Dutch Sheets talked about an old charismatic leader that would go into a room and sometimes he'd walk into a room and somebody that was demonized, would, somebody would turn around, you know, that had demonic spirits attached to their soul and a demon would speak through him and go, oh, hell, it's him. We don't need to pray quiet prayers. We don't, we don't, we're not in an outsmarting the devil game in prayer. You know, like um, we, need to not, we need to realize that Satan does have, he has the ability to influence the earth through agreement with, with us, with mankind, with men and women in the earth. He has the agreement to bring great damage, to bring great suffering. And we don't, we don't like mock the devil or like think that he has no ability. He, he's messing with all sorts of people all around the world right now. And it's, it's something to take seriously. But we also, this is not a game of wits and cunning and trying to kind of figure out how to, how to trick the devil. Uh, Jesus said this in Luke eleven two 2, when the disciples asked him to pray. In Luke's account of this uh, moment uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, when you pray, say. When you pray, say. One of my friends, Ben Dixon, who you may know, who pastors in the Federal Way area, he has a whole teaching series on prayer and he, he upset all sorts of people with this one, but he did a big study on prayer. And basically when you study the word prayer and you study the prayers of the Bible, it's always implied that you're praying them out loud. And so Ben was teaching that we should pray out loud. That's what Jesus taught. When you pray, say. Not when you pray, think. When you pray, ponder. 
Like Ben would say in his series, the only time we see someone that was praying quietly in their heart was Hannah, and she was praying for her son Samuel, and it said that she appeared drunk as she prayed. So if you want to be your drunk prayers, you can pray quietly in your heart to yourself. And, I, and yes, we can look, we can deduce from the scriptures that God reads our thoughts. He knows our thoughts before we think it. So we are able to pray in our mind. Yes, that, that, that could technically be true. But the overwhelming burden of proof and the main body of teaching on prayer in the Bible is that we pray out loud. And to be honest with you, I can at least speak from personal experience. If I pray quietly to myself in my mind, like let's say I go spend 30 to 60 minutes with God in prayer and I do it quietly the whole time. You know what I find? I am way more distracted because it's very hard to decipher whether I'm praying or thinking. Am I thinking my thoughts towards God? But when I say words out loud, there's actually power because I'm hearing what I'm saying. And sometimes my prayers reveal my unbelief and I have to repent because I hear myself say, why am I speaking from such defeat right now? Am I that discouraged right now? Okay, God, take my burden, lift my burden. Or other times I'm like, wow, do you hear what I'm saying right now, John? Woo, you have a little conversation with yourself. My dad says those are the smartest conversations he has every day with himself, right? Uh, but you, you hear like, wow, I think I really believe this. And you start praying the word of God and you hear your, your own ears, hear your voice declaring the word of God and it's powerful. It does something to your spirit and to your soul to hear the word of God. Prayer should be loud, fervent, anointed, a groan, a cry, a passion, not a thought. Who cares what the devil thinks about my prayers? God can hide me and confuse the devil anyway if he needs to. This is supernatural work here, this prayer business, right? This prayer relationship with God. This is supernatural stuff. And so God can hide me in, under the shelter of his wings. God can protect me. I want to pray and declare the word of the Lord. You know, we don't need the old school get smart like the dome of silence to like come over us in our prayer time. Like we can, uh, we, what we need is we need a people who are giving themselves to prayer. Now that doesn't mean you have to be loud and boisterous. If you are a quiet personality or disposition, that's fine. But I'm encouraging you to give voice to your prayers. Give voice to your prayers. What Jesus said, when you pray, say, and number 10, prayer in the spirit is for certain Christians. A lot of people have taught that praying in the spirit, that praying through the gift of tongues is like a very optional feature. Like you can buy a car. You don't have to have a moonroof. It's nice to have one, right? You don't have to have, you get a four-wheel drive. You don't have to have it jacked up and get better suspension. It's nice if you do, but you don't need it, right? And so a lot of people treat, uh, a lot of people treat their Christian life like, yeah, some of those guys, they're a little extra excitable. They speak in tongues. And it's kind of like option. Like you get saved, you get baptized in water, and then like, some people, they want to have these experiences, so they, they speak in tongues and they do this. The Bible does not paint it that way. In 1 Corinthians 14, 5, Apostle Paul said this, I wish you all spoke with tongues. I wish every believer spoke with tongues. Later in that letter, he would say that not all do, but he says he wishes that they did. He said that prophecy in a public meeting was more important than tongues. So a lot of people read 1 Corinthians 14 and go, see, tongues isn't that important. But right there, he says in verse 5, I wish everybody spoke with tongues. He said he speaks in tongues more than any, even when he was trying to say prophecy is more important in a public meeting because it can encourage the whole body uh, than tongues is. He, he was trying to say right in the middle of that teaching, but I speak in tongues more. I'm not dissing on tongues. I want everybody to speak in tongues because tongues is a superpower. It's a gateway gift. It's not a gateway drug. It's a gateway gift that opens you up to the dynamic working of the Spirit, to growing in faith. Romans 8, 26 through 28 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. What's amazing about that teaching in Romans 8 about the praying and groaning of the Holy Spirit is that in verse 828, it says that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, if that's not a bumper sticker Bible verse, refrigerator magnet Bible verse, I don't know what is. Like that is one of the biggest cliche scriptures. Somebody's going through a hard time. They're like, hey, brother, hey, sister, you know, I just want you to know today, 
God works all things together for good. And go, oh, thank you for that promise. Oh, that's right. But if you look at, why do I do a Southern kind of accent when I imitate people like that? I don't know. I love all you people from the South. <laughs> okay. But um, Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good. Isn't it interesting that it comes right after the part? It says, and we know this. Why does it say, and we know this? And is a connecting word. It's connecting us to the previous verses. What do the previous verses say? The Holy Spirit is praying through us with groans and utterances that words cannot express. The perfect will of God, because the Spirit of God searches the mind and the heart of God and prays the perfect will of God. And we know that all things work together for good. So I don't know if we should be quoting and encouraging people to be using Romans 8, 28, like just quote it, just believe it, just know. It's saying that when we pray in the Spirit, when the Spirit's praying and groaning through us, that's how God redeems and works things together for good because the agency of the Spirit of God is partnering with us in the middle of situations that aren't good, that we don't know how to pray for as we ought, as the Scripture says, but then the Spirit starts birthing the will of God as we pray in tongues, as we pray in groans. And yes, that may not even just be tongues. That may be a travail kind of tongues that is even beyond the regular kind of tongues that gets people into a place of groaning where God literally births something in prayer that causes a redemption and a great turnaround to happen. So see, when I read promises like this, if I want the perfectness of God's will to redeem the bad for good, to work all things together for good for me because I love God and I'm called according to his purpose, then how could I see praying in the spirit as optional? Because I don't know about you. I don't always know what to pray for as I ought. So I want the spirit then to pray through me. And when the spirit's praying through me, the perfect will of God is being prayed into the earth. That doesn't sound like an option package to me. That sounds like something that I need. And we want God to have everything that you need that he has promised you. Open your heart to the Holy Spirit today that he would give you, he would give you this gift of praying in the spirit. You want that special fuel to win the race. You want to not grow weary. You want fresh wine. You want fresh oil. Receive the Holy Spirit today. If I was to have a point number 11, it'd be the greatest myth in prayer is that we're in this alone. Jesus stands as our great intercessor. The Bible says that he is living now to make intercession for us. That Jesus is the ultimate example of a prayer warrior, but the Bible says that Jesus, after he died on the cross for our sins and he was buried and he rose again and he ascended to heaven, that Jesus reigns in heaven right now, standing as the intercessor. Intercessor means a go-between. It's a picture of what we do in prayer. We go between God and man. We go between a broken situation and God and we plead for God's will to be done on behalf of that brokenness, on behalf of that evil, on behalf of that darkness, on behalf of that pain. And Jesus there stands as that great intercessor and he's the great prayer warrior that stands there and Jesus is praying for you today. He's praying that if you don't know him, that you would know him. He's praying that your eyes would be open to the transcendent beauty and glory of God, that that you would come out of your sin and you would receive and embrace the salvation that's available through believing in Jesus alone. He's praying for you today that you're gonna grow in your faith. He's praying for you today that you're gonna make it through this crisis. He's praying for your family today. He's standing on behalf before the Father and, he's, and he's, he, he died on the cross and his work was enough, but now he stands and he says, Father, because of the cross, I'm standing that they would be healed. I'm standing that they would be blessed. I'm standing that they would have breakthrough over the attacks of the evil one that are on their life and on their faith and on their health and on their finances right now. That Jesus stands and he looks over every need of the human condition and he's standing there and he's saying, oh God, and and so you're not in this alone. But if, if you don't know Jesus, you are, you are kind of in this alone. You can pray without a relationship with Jesus. You can throw up pray, prayers to God, but what God really wants is a relationship with you. He wants to take you from a place that's praying about if God is real or if God can help me out with this. He wants, he wants you to surrender to him and give your life to him. And some of you have been praying prayers some of you that are watching this, you've been, you don't even believe in Jesus yet, but you've been praying prayers during this crisis and you've been wondering, is there a God? And maybe you even see God answer some prayers. And I want to tell you what God is doing in the middle of that. He is actually opening up a door. He's opening up a door and he's showing himself to you because he's pursuing you and he loves you. And he's saying, I don't want to just answer a prayer when you're in a hellish situation. I don't want to answer a prayer when you're just going through a little bit of a hard time. I want to know you. I want to relate to you. I want to talk with you every day. I want to help you in every area of your life. And ultimately, I want to give you eternal life. And if you're watching this right now and you've never surrendered to Jesus Christ, that you need to open your heart to him. And it's so simple. It's as simple as this. It's as simple as saying, 
I have not had a relationship with God. I have not believed. I've not given my life to him. I have sin in my life. I've gone my own way. But today I repent of my sin. And I'm turning to you, Jesus, to believe in you. And if you want to get, receive the gift of eternal life, you, you call on Jesus and you believe that he died for you on the cross, that he rose again, that he's pursuing you today. You open your heart to his spirit and he's going to come in your life right now. And he's going to change you. I'd like you to pray this prayer with me. Say, Father God, thank you for Jesus Christ and the invitation that you are giving me for a relationship. I've prayed a little bit. I've wondered about you. But today... I'm saying, yes, I give my life to you. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross, that you rose again. Now fill me with your forgiveness, with your power, with your Holy Spirit, and let me never be the same again. I turn my life to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, leave us a comment. Send us a message. Send us an email. We want to know. We want to give you a Bible. We want to, we want to send something to you. We want to pray for you. We want to help you grow in your faith. And if you're watching this and you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit, I just want to pray a prayer. I'm going to ask my, my wife to come up right now. We're going to end with communion in just a moment. Uh, and we are going to uh, pray a blessing over you. But I want to pray one more prayer before we uh, come and partake of the body and blood of our Lord. And I just want to pray, if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, or maybe you did it once here or there, but you've never entered into a lifestyle of praying in the Spirit, I want to pray right now, and I want you to get on your knees. I want you to put your hand out. I want you to take a step of faith right in your home. If you need to stand up and just put your hands out and receive. But I'm just going to pray over this video, and I believe that the Holy Spirit is going to come on you, whether you're watching this live or on a rerun. If you are open from your heart, this is a point of contact for your faith right now. I'm going to ask that the fire of God would fall. And I don't care how many times you've been prayed for before. This is a promise of God. This is the promise of Jesus. Jesus is called the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. This is one of the functions that Jesus does as our intercessor, uh, is that he still baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit uh, teaches us how to pray. And there are more gifts than just tongues. There is more things that happen, but this is a a primary, uh, 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 an initial evidence for the gift that God releases into our life to give us a confidence that we've received the Spirit, that we can pray in the Spirit, and that we can renew our faith and our strength. So I'm just going to pray right now. I'm gonna, I pray, Father, for those that have never received the Holy Spirit to speak in tongues. I thank you there's no limitation in prayer. And I just pray that the hand of Jesus, our great intercessor, would come upon each believer right now that's trusting you for the gift of tongues and the ability to pray in the Spirit. Lord God, I pray for every limitation to be broken, all fear to be broken right now, all witchcraft to be broken in Jesus' name. And I declare, Lord God, that you are coming upon people sovereignly, that the fire of God, that tongues of fire would be released right now, that rivers of living water would flow from innermost being. I declare from your innermost being that rivers are, are flowing right now. Be open, be open right now uh, in the innermost being right now to receive those rivers of living water that Jesus promised for those who would be full of the Spirit. And I'm just telling you right now to give your tongue to the Lord. And I'm going to count to three. And when I count to three, if God, as God is stirring something, it is either something's going to stir up from the inside or maybe you're just going to stay there quietly for a little bit and it's like a waterfall, like he's being poured out on you. The Bible says the Holy Spirit was poured out so that he comes like a river. So you might sense that he's being poured on you. You might sense a stirring up from inside, but you're going to get like a word or a language or some kind of word that doesn't make sense to your natural mind as you're trusting in Jesus right now. Give voice to it and start to say it out loud and start to repeat it. And he's going to pray through you as you give voice. He's not going to take over your mouth. He's not going to take over your tongue. He's going to, he's going to, you're going to give him your voice and he's going to give you the words. You're not praying from your mind. You're praying from a place of your spirit as the Holy Spirit gives you the power. So as I just pray right now for release, one, that you would speak in new tongues, that you would receive a release of the Holy Spirit right now. Two, that the fire of God is falling upon you, that it's being released and stirred up within you. Three, give voice right now. Give voice right now. And I believe the Lord is saying that as my people, as my people are stirred up to pray in this hour, I will fill them with fire. I will fill them with new tongues. I will fill them with an anointing for revival prayer. I will fill their homes with fire. I will fill their homes with joy. I will fill their homes with laughter. I will fill, fill their homes with tears for the city and for the nations. And I will shake things that need to be shaken. 
through the prayers of my people. Open up your eyes to where your help comes from. Open up your hearts to where the fire of God would come in. Open up your homes to the purposes of God. Open up your hearts to what he's doing in this hour and this generation. Hear his voice and join him where he is at work in Jesus' mighty name. Just stay there. And we want to hear from you if you receive this gift today. Send us a message. Send us a comment. We want to encourage the faith about how God is working despite our limited uh, ability to be together. In Psalms 121, I just feel the Lord is just saying, this is just the start. It's a new start of prayer. We've been a praying church. My dad paved the way for almost 30 years of prayer, but I feel the Holy Spirit interrupting me again right now. This is another restart. This is another moment for us to engage as a house of prayer, as a people. This is a time to press in for our culture, for our generation, for our city, for our families. This is the hour of prayer. Don't take it as a light thing. Don't take it as a light thing. Don't go about business as usual, but enter into an increased place of prayer. We thank you, Lord, for revival prayer, prayer that will wake the dead in Jesus' name, prayer that will bring us into the land of the living. Thank you, Jesus. I read Psalms 121 during the offering today, and I want to read that as we come to communion. The psalmist said, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Thank you for joining us today for the Sunrise Message of the Week. Check out isunrise.org for more information and feel free to share our podcast on your socials. See you next week as we continue Revival Prayer.